0: Defense and intelligence officials are trying to end the stigma that seeking mental health care could put your security clearance at risk. They're now looking to update the clearance process to encourage a more behavioral approach. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And let's begin with mental health itself. How does this all factor into the security clearance process, Justin?
1: Well, when you apply for a security clearance, you know, in a national security position, you fill out standard form 86. And and that includes questions about your emotional and psychological health, among many other questions. And between 2012 and 2020, the Defense Department's consolidated adjudications facility made more than 5.4 million adjudication decisions on clearances. And of those, only about 1.8% featured issues related to psychological guidelines and within those cases, only 62 clearances were denied or revoked solely due to the person's psychological issues. That's according to data published by the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency. So the upshot is that it's very rare for a security clearance to be denied or revoked solely due to a mental health issue. And officials tout that, that statistic, but they acknowledge that a stigma still kind of persists that may convince cleared employees that it's against their interests to seek out mental health care. This all comes at a time when the country as a whole has been reckoning with mental health issues. Uh, Roughly one-third of Americans are anxious about their mental health, according to the American Psychiatric Association. So Mark Fraunfelter is the assistant director for the special security directorate within the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, and he spoke more about this issue at an event hosted by the Intelligence and National Security Alliance.
2: Like all Americans, the intelligence community employees they deal with the same stressors that everyone is dealing with right now. You know, We have financial strains, we have work problems, family issues, and obviously that will result in depression, anxiety, some turn to substances to, to help alleviate some of those illness or, or conditions. So it's important that we dispel this myth about seeking support and seeking treatment.
0: Well, if the evidence shows that the numbers rejected are so tiny, almost infinitesimal for someone, say, reporting, I don't know they're seeing a therapist or whatever the case might be, what is the basis for the stigma then?
1: Well, there's just a general stigma, of course, around mental health in the workplace and talking about it. And within the national security cleared community, some of that stigma actually stems from the old wording. On the standard form 86, uh, the questionnaire I, I mentioned earlier, question 21 pertains to those psychological and emotional health issues prior to 2017. It actually asked just whether the applicant had sought mental health care for some sort of concern within the last seven years. And of course, that led potentially led applicants and employees to believe that if they, they had listed anything there, that it could negatively affect their clearance determination. So after 2017, the form was updated to provide a, a preamble that actually emphasizes the importance of seeking mental health care. And the questions were updated to break them out into specific things that they might have to report. That includes court actions related to a mental status or court-ordered treatment, potential self-harm to yourself or others. Uh, in an inpatient hospitalization uh, case, certain conditions uh, which could impact judgment and reliability, uh, you know, sort of diagnosed conditions, or non-adherence to care that doctors may have ordered. So there's sort of uh, more of a nuance now to these questions, but this sort of stigma still kind of persists within the clearance process. Here's Mark Fraunfelter again.
2: I think there's a lot of ambiguity about how that final decision is rendered, and really it comes down to a risk management decision. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people make false assumptions and believe that seeking treatment or counseling for mental health-related circumstances could negatively impact that trust determination.
0: Again, Mark Fraunfelter of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. We were speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, if you identify a condition or a mental health concern on that form, you call it a questionnaire. It's actually 136 pages. What happens then?
1: Agencies are trying to destigmatize this this idea by focusing on mental fitness. So they're actually trying to consider it a positive factor when an employee says they are, in fact, seeking out mental health care because you are addressing that mental fitness rather than ignoring it or or self-treating or or something else. Uh, You know, it's also considered by adjudicators under this whole person concept where security clearance determinations are supposed to be made based on the totality of an individual's actions, not just one individual potentially disqualifying or negative factor. So so Mariana Martineau is the assistant director for, for adjudications at the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency. Here's how she says they view it.
3: We view getting mental health care positively because you as an individual are acknowledging that you need help and you're going out and getting it, whether that's counseling or medication or combinations thereof, whether it's spiritual uh, assistance, whatever that assistance may be. You are often avoiding these undiagnosed consequences that come out in other ways like alcohol and drug okay. involvement and financial concerns are the big three that kind of coexist.
0: And you just have to hope it's not a Russian double agent in that confessional booth. And Justin, does the government actually use psychologists or people that know this stuff, mental health professionals, as they develop these new policies to, you know, get some advice from?
1: Yeah, DCSA employs professional psychologists and psychiatrists. They play an advisory role, largely in security clearance adjudications. There are some adjudicators actually who have psychologist backgrounds. Uh, Michael Priester is the chief psychologist in the adjudications division at DCSA. So just shows you they have a chief psychologist there in the first place. And he says they they do help kind of inform these final decisions that are made. Mental health practitioners like psychologists and psychiatrists, they render opinions on whether or not the individual's behaviors of concern are likely to impact their judgment, their reliability, their stability, and their overall
2: trustworthiness.
1: And so adjudicators can use this as part of the whole person determination of trustworthiness. And they will, by the way, oftentimes, uh, not rarely, disagree. So uh, it's certainly
2: a SME advisory opinion, not by any means uh, mandatory.
0: All right, so given all of this information, are they looking to update? The whole role of mental health or the way they evaluate it in that clearance process?
1: Yeah, there's a new working group under that's under the auspices of the Trusted Workforce 2.0 Initiative, which is a whole-of-government uh, initiative to modernize the security clearance process. Fraunfelter says officials are looking at further updates to those questions on the SF-86 beyond what the uh, the 2017 updates. And what they really want to do is make it more of a behavioral approach where they're not just looking at what you've been diagnosed with or a specific treatment that you're taking, but what, what are your, your overall behaviors under this new continuous vetting model that officials are putting in place? Here's Fraunfelter again.
2: We want to modernize those questions, and we want to shift from a focus on asking about treatment diagnoses to more of a
1: behavioral approach. And again, that's Mark Fraunfelter from the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. And and I mentioned continuous vetting. That's a system of automated alerts to flag when a clearance holder faces a potential issue. So as Fraunfelter just alluded to, they think using continuous vetting could help flag potential issues with security clearance holders,
0: including maybe in the mental health space. And if you're not crazy after filling out a 136-page form, then you should be good to go. But the Bottom line here is, if you are seeking mental health help, that should not deter you from seeking security clearance.
1: That's right. And it shouldn't put you off if you have a security clearance in the first place that they really want folks to seek help
0: when they need it. All right. Get the help you need if you need it. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
4: Hello. I'm White the CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Anunda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. she has been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations, for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here.
4: Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you
3: no, know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to, honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play little league baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether